And I think that as time goes on, people are going to start realizing that fantasy was just a start. There's so much more kind of green space to explore and really to figure out where fans want to have fun. It's a great time to be a sports fan, I guess is what I'm saying right now, because I think the next 10 years, especially with regulations kind of changing around sports betting, there's just going to be more and more opportunity to explore and find really cool ways for fans to engage that they've never been able to before. Welcome to the Sports Backdrop, a sports epreneur podcast. Sports got us together in the first place, but in this show, sports are the backdrop for way bigger conversations. This podcast exists because of the team at CADCM. At CADCM, we make content creation enjoyable. We are on a mission to help leaders create content, content that will improve lives, content to be proud of, content that fosters community. We know through firsthand experience how content brings people together, and we love helping make that happen. We produce podcasts, short-form videos, blog posts, and other written works, while also providing support in website development, social media management, and strategic planning. And we would be excited to help you. Visit cascm.com to learn more, or feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. My first question for you is, would your interest in sports be this high if you didn't have like money and the personal competition that exists? It's so funny that you mentioned that. Okay. I grew up as a typical kind of, you know, American kid, you know, playing intramural soccer, baseball, all the kind of stuff growing up. But my parents were always frustrated that I wouldn't watch any of the pros play to learn how to get better because I had no interest in kind of watching professional version of the sports, but I had so much fun playing them. The first thing that really triggered my kind of interest in watching professional sports in a real way, I mean, other than living in, you know, I lived in New York in the early 2000s, so you know, watching the Yankees was kind of fun just because they were so dominant. But my interest really peaked in professional sports in general once I started playing fantasy football with my uh, buddies in like sixth grade. Yeah. One of my friends basically just proposed to do a fantasy league. I had no idea what it was. And I instantly became obsessed with watching the games, tracking the players, trying to find, you know, any information I could find, basically beat my friends. I mean, that was the really big thing. The kind of spirit of competition there and being right was so important to me that that's honestly mm. what got me into professional sports immediately. So it's fair to say that I would definitely not be nearly as big of a sports fan as I am today had not fantasy existed, which eventually led to daily fantasy sports, which led to sports betting and kind of beyond. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because as we record this, we're in the middle of March Madness, right? It's going to the Final Four mm -hmm. and time will pass, but next year it'll come back around. And I'm fascinated by like, during the regular season of college basketball, no one talks about it. I'm in North Carolina, so I'm in Charlotte. I'm in a mecca of college basketball. Oh, yeah, when yeah. I first got here, no doubt. Like it was Duke, Carolina, NC State, like even Wake Forest. It was constantly being talked about. But now, even more so, the regular season, no one talks about it. March Madness shows yep. up and everyone and their mother and their brother and their sister and the kids and their dogs, they all have, they have a bracket. And now this year is obviously crazy. But like that stake, and I think college is interesting because people have an allegiance to their school. So if you went to San Diego State, Maybe you like the team, maybe you root for them, and then they make this big run. That's a big deal. So it's that plus it's, I believe, the stakes of gambling, of you having something personally mm -hmm. invested. You're vested in the outcome of it, where it changes how you just watch sports and take it. Like You see the same thing too, I'm assuming, with March Madness, just like you do in fantasy football. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and March Madness is a great example because you know me and my co-founders, we went to the University of Pennsylvania. We've been in the tournament once in our lifetime, I think. Right. And we lost right. in the first round to Kansas. And yeah. so March Madness is always fun. I mean, it's so crazy to see all these people that have no interest in sports come in. Like the fact that my mom and my dad are talking about it when they're 
not yeah. really sports fans to talk about anything else. You know, they have their office pools, they have kind of their friend groups that are doing it. It's just such right. a great indicator of how powerful something like just like a bracket is, right? It's not even like a, a real bet, but just having the yeah. ability to be like, oh, wow, I got like, you know, this pick, right? It's just so much fun for everyone. Yeah, it's so funny to me too, because I'll see people get really mad. Like, I can't believe they lost. And that's my team when I had them. <laughs> and I'm like, did you watch them play at all this year? Like, even if you did watch them play, it's not to say like, you should be a better, you know, the experts struggle with making their <laughs> selections. But they get mad at the team didn't play well, because that was the team that they picked, but they like, didn't know anything about them before. But what's so fascinating is they're so dialed in to what's going to happen on the court. So let me ask this then, because I've seen this in both ways, where someone can play, let's use your example of fantasy sports. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden they become a fan of football. And you know, it's different for everybody. So I ask you this question, are you watching the games? Like, are you dialed in? I'm going to watch the games. I want to see how my players perform. Or are you watching the data? Yeah. So it's really interesting. So my background is in data science. So I did a college degree in computer science and statistics. It's really hard for me to separate at this point, honestly. Yeah. And I think it's becoming more and more of a thing. I mean, 20 years ago, it would be wild to talk about being a sports fan through fantasy first rather than being, you know, a allegiance just to a specific team. Right. I think what you're finding more and more with sports fans is that as all these different kind of forms of sports engagement become more and more popular and more prevalent, that there's less allegiance to just like your hometown and more allegiance to where do I have skin in the game? Where am I honestly going to profit or, you know, lose money on kind of what's going on here? And it's an interesting balance that's kind of striking here because that on top of kind of individual personalities, I think, being more and more expressed through social media has given a very new kind of look to sports fandom than it was, you know, again, 20 years ago when it really was. You only have your TV. You don't have any direct connections to the athletes. You don't have any direct ability to even, you know, participate, so to speak, by betting or playing fantasy or getting skin in the game. And I think it's honestly really healthy for the world of sports in a lot of ways. It's bringing in a lot of new fans that wouldn't have otherwise been interested. And they're in a lot of ways, they're even more engaged than ever. Though I do think that there's a caveat of, I think it's really messed up that people are sending death threats to athletes and stuff over mm -hmm. Twitter when they lose a bat or, you know, I need you to get one more rebound. Like stuff like that mm -hmm. is probably too far. But there is some kind of sweet spot that we need to reach here of, you know, getting engagement, getting people that wouldn't normally be watching sports into it, but still maintaining the ability to, you know, make it about fun and not about just purely financial kind of profit. Yeah, the mental health component, I would say it's not the sport itself, it's something deeper. And that's in the individual. We're seeing a lot of these things, whether it's like what's happening in school shootings and things like that. Like there's something deep going on with a mental health issue to have that, to take it to that point, to your point of saying, why didn't you score a touchdown? Like what's wrong with you? And, and people get on social media. So there's a mental health component to it. And we'll definitely get into that as it relates to, you know, addiction with fantasy sports and gambling and, and all those types of things. But you bring up a really good point because I think about that a lot. You know, I grew up in Buffalo and the Bills and the Sabres, and that's the team that you watch, right? Like you mm -hmm. grow up in an, especially in a culture like that, to where it's everything. Like people live and die with that team. You know, they went to four Super Bowls. You know, when they lose, like yeah. the town yeah. suffers, they suffer together. You know, my dad, originally from Cleveland, Ohio, that's three hours down the road. And when he moves from Cleveland to Buffalo, the Browns aren't on TV in Buffalo at that time. Yep. So unless you hop in your car, get in a plane and go to Cleveland, you're not really seeing the Browns anymore. So then you have season tickets to the Bills. And, and what happens? You know, he's still loyal to the Cleveland and loyal to the Browns, but he becomes a Bills fan because you can't watch your team any other way. So where today, then you see kids that let's use the Warriors as an example. If you live in Buffalo, you don't have an NBA team who's on TV all the time, who's fun to watch. They become Warriors fans. And I guess we yeah. could use the word front runner to say, well, 
yeah, they're just enjoying it. They like watching Steph Curry and he's winning. So it's easy to root for that team. And they got Durant or whatever they had at the time. But it's different today. Like, it's not like growing up in Cleveland and being an Indians, now the Guardians fan, because that's your team. And that's the only thing you can see. Nowadays, it's like, it's weird to me in some respects that we grew up in these houses and we're like, it makes sense because my son was never lived in Buffalo and he's a Bills fan, right? He loves Josh Allen, like that whole thing. And so there's a culture. So it's not weird in a bad way. It's unique, but it's also weird to say, why can't he grow up and be a Seahawks fan if he wants to? Like, yep. one of my kids liked The Good Place, the TV show. And she was interested in that what the Jaguars are doing because they're referenced so much in the show. <laughs> yeah, and she really funny. doesn't care about it. <laughs> but like, we were in Jacksonville for a hockey tournament and she was like excited. So we went by to see the stadium. There's so many different ways to become fans of teams now. And it doesn't have to just be because you were like born in that city, right? Like, exactly. Fascinating. Yeah, so that's actually kind of the core of what actually drove me to found Frontrunner, you know, a couple of years ago. It was this realization that, you know, there's so much access to information, streams, clips, everything, highlights of every kind of team now, that it's easier to be a fan than it ever was before. And what this led to for me was I was starting to get honestly annoyed at my friends who would, you know, watch a 10-minute YouTube video on a player or whatever and argue with me who had been doing, you know, hours of data analysis, hours of kind of study of it, and we'd have an argument together. And so that led to, for me, is it's almost too easy for people to have opinions and takes now on sports. Sports betting, for me, became a way to not just to put my money where my mouth is, essentially, right? Like, talk is cheap in sports. Can we find a better way to allow people to express their sports knowledge and beliefs in a more fair system to where they can succeed or fail based on their skill and knowledge, and not just based off the house kind of, you know, screwing them, so to speak, kind of from the right. start there. And so I think that access to information has really driven also the rise of things like fantasy sports and sports betting. No longer do people have to kind of you know look at like newspaper clippings, like right. the scores and things like that. Right. Everything is set up so easily now for people to get information that even a casual fan can at least have opinions on a player, a team, a season, a league. And I think that's really healthy for the world of sports. And again, it's just about finding the right way to allow people to express those knowledge and beliefs in a fun and healthy way. Yeah. The leagues and the NFL's done the best job by far, right? With like acceptance of fantasy football and making it about mm-hmm. it and making like you can go to stadiums and there's content, and then you get FanDuel and and it's so organized so well because it's that Sunday. And I know they have games on other days now and Thursdays and Mondays and whatnot, but it's organized so well that it's just brought in football has gone through some stuff with the concussion issues and domestic abuse and kneeling. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of stuff that's going on there. But the rise of fantasy at the end of the day, it like grabs into the core, like we talked about before, competition, stakes, money, personal relationships. Like there's leagues, like you don't even have to have money involved in leagues to have like engagement. Like you might have friends, like you all went to college or high school together, like I have, and you're spread around the country or the world, yet you can come together for this fantasy football league, right? And like, it could just be trash talking. (laughs) Now, obviously, people then want to put a little, you know, let's put a little smack on it, right? Let's get to that point as well. And so that makes sense. But like, I look at Major League Baseball, and I know that was really one of the the beginnings of fantasy sports. Like fantasy baseball was the first one. Baseball, though, on the back end of it has been, and we just published this article, the future of baseball. And you talk about like young fans, like my dad who grew up, you know, the Indians in Cleveland were it. That was everything. And now kids today, they don't sit around and watch a baseball game. Like, why would they? Yep. And there's no engagement. There's no excitement. There's no 
I'm not saying going to a ballpark isn't fun. It's a blast. And I know kids enjoy that, but go watch them. They're not sitting in their seats for three, four hours. They're yeah. off doing something else, getting snacks, seeing how fast they can throw a ball, sitting in the outfield and rolling down the hill. But like, how are these leagues, are they paying attention? Like in your eyes, obviously the NFL is, but like, what do you see? And you could, whether it's baseball or basketball, however you want to do it. Like, are they paying attention? Are they realizing that fantasy sports and gambling is like, that's where their attention, the people's attention that are paying attention to their games is actually being placed. Yeah, I mean, during my MBA program between 2019 and 2021, I was applying for jobs at the MLB, the NBA, the NFL, actually right before COVID hit. It was all shut down due to COVID, but uh, I was going yeah. through kind of the interview process there. And especially at the MLB, I remember when we were getting kind of like the group session, just like learning about the MLB and the application process, one of the jokes they made, which I think was more serious than they may have uh, meant to be, was if you can figure out how to get Gen Z to watch baseball, we'll make you commissioner of the league today. Yeah. It is singularly on their mind in terms of, you know, the average age of baseball in particular, of the average fan was creeping up. It really has been creeping up over the last couple of decades here. And then it's really because they didn't have a good way to embrace this, all this kind of new digital sports engagement. And each of the leagues now is building teams, right? The NBA, I think, is also one of the more progressive ones in terms of they have their NBA 2K League that was actually much bigger than kind of the Madden side of things for the NFL there. They've been taking a very active stance in finding other engagement ways, whether it's you know, NBA picks, whether it's you know, fantasy that's, you know they're trying to grow the scene of. All of the leagues are now taking this much more seriously. And for the most part, the NFL has kind of just coasted on fantasy very easily. You know, the community really built that for them. They didn't even need to do that themselves. And it's been such a boon to get fans, you know, even like me, who wasn't a, really a football fan, until the fantasy aspect really wormed its way into my brain and became something that now I almost can't live without. You know, every year, the best time of the year is draft season coming up for the fantasy football. And I think that as time goes on, people are going to start realizing that fantasy was just a start. There's so much more kind of green space to explore and really to figure out where fans want to have fun. Especially now that there's a generation growing up with things like legalized sports betting in the U.S. for the first time. It really feels like the floodgates are about to open here in terms of creative ways to engage with your fans, finding new ways to do it. There's even things like, you know, Green Park Sports, an example of a company that is doing digital avatars to represent your fandom, right? There's mm. this whole idea of not only what kind of fan are you in real life, but how do you represent yourself in the digital world where more and more interactions between you, your friends, and your overarching community are, and even your hat you're wearing, right? Overtime is a company that's found really cool ways to engage with their community through like their swag, kind of apparel, things like that. I think there's just so many avenues that companies are exploring right now. And I think it's only going to be, it's a great time to be a sports fan, I guess is what I'm saying right now. Because I think the next 10 years, especially with regulations kind of changing around sports betting, there's just going to be more and more opportunity to explore and find really cool ways for fans to engage that they've never been able to before. Yeah. The question that they ask at your Major League Baseball meeting is fascinating. One of the companies that when I originally built CasSource, this business, we have an insurance brokerage group and that still exists. And I'm not in it on a day-to-day -day basis, but it's interesting because I was asked to be on some boards. So I joined this board. It's like financial service professionals, something along those lines. You sit in the room and one of the things they do is they have meetings and they bring people in and talk about the economy. And it could be interesting. It could also be extremely boring. It's extremely dry. And it's like, there's so many better ways to do this. Like showing up to a stuffy country club and everyone's got to wear a suit. I'm like, guys, what are we doing here? <laughs> and the thing that they're trying to figure out is how do we get Gen Z and millennials, right? To show up to our meetings. And their answer, mm -hmm. I swear to you, was let's do it at a brewery. Like that was it. Like really? thinking okay. that everyone would show up, that you would show up because <laughs> we drink beer and that's cool, right? Like, so I think Major League Baseball, for example, 
they would get these ideas and it's the wrong people making the decisions. It's like going to Capitol Hill and letting them decide the future of what gambling is going to look like and what social media is going to look yeah. like. They don't even understand it. And I'm not to say that that's okay that they don't understand it. It's like, are you talking to the right people? Are you talking to enough people? Are you having conversations like this? Like, listen into this conversation and I bet you could learn something. Like, just don't go to the the top of the media. Like, don't go to CNN and MSNBC yep. and Fox and just like, that's what they say on there. That's all bullshit. And like, you really have to get out there and talk to real people building real companies of all different ages. And what do they think about it? Because talk to my dad and I brought it up numerous times. Like, so he lives in Buffalo now and he's there during the summer. Mm -hmm. He can't watch the Cleveland Indians play baseball because they're blacked out there. Like there's four teams that you're blacked out from seeing. He can't watch the Yankees or the Mets or the Pirates. It's like, there's four teams. I'm in Charlotte. I can't watch the Cincinnati Reds. Like I'm not a Reds fan. I don't care about the Reds. I don't think the Reds fans want to watch the Reds play. But like, they're blacked out in Charlotte. How does that make any sense at all? It's like an eight-hour drive or something stupid. Yep. So it's like, they're definitely working at it and they're trying to get better at it. But you have to have engagement and like you said, and what you're building and what you're doing is fantasy, gambling, like Web3. Like these are the places, social media, these are the places that they can engage young fans. Because if Major League Baseball plans to have one of the top four sports in this country long-term, they better start doing something now because like soccer is an international game that is huge. I know the MLS is not there, but I'll tell you what. Growing though. The Charlotte FC, they got a team here. It is a better experience, hands down, than going to a Panthers game. It's not even close. <laughs> like the engagement, and I know it's not as big and the stakes aren't as high and the quality isn't as the level of like, what an NFL game would be, but it's just like, it's a better experience. The cost isn't as crazy. So like, I don't know what like the MLB does to engage their fans, but they need to start doing it. I think gambling, fantasy, and, and making the game more entertaining and all those things, no doubt. So a lot of this has to do with the engagement because there's a lot of loyalty to like in fantasy sports, like you become loyal to certain players. Yep, exactly. And I've also seen it to where like, to your point, I'm sure you've seen this to where if you're watching the data, you removed yourself from the emotion of the game and you're able to make clear and better decisions because you are focused in on the data. Like you might like, let's just say Josh Allen a lot, but you can remove the emotion that you have. If let's say you're a Bills fan to say, I don't like him this year because of this. And because I see the data yeah. that backs that up where other people are just picking it. So it's like, and no one's wrong, right? It's just a different mm -hmm. way to do it. But I think watching that data has become a fascinating thing. And like going in baseball, like watch the analytics. Like, are we getting to the point in baseball where if you deal have enough data, you might be able to really figure out like the outcome of these games because they have the data. Now you know what their data is and now you can make your decisions yeah. based off of that. Like that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Well, like along with this, you know, and talking about baseball, right? I think that there's a lot of parallels to draw with things like the stock market. And what I mean by that is 10, 15 years ago, you would have never thought that young people would have wanted to trade in the stock market, right? It's very boring. It's not fun. It's a very financial concept. But what the MLB needs to realize is, you know, what Robinhood did so well was make it accessible and fun for a generation for kind of the first time, right? Yeah. Robinhood did such a good job. It got to the point where my younger brother could basically explain options contracts to me in like middle school. And I was like, holy moly, how are you learning this type of stuff? And he's like, oh, yeah. there's just like this app out there that's making it super easy and fun. And so I think sports leagues can learn a lot from that. And honestly, sports betting can learn a lot from that in terms of taking a format that has been traditionally kind of complicated or hard to understand and trying to make it as simple as possible, right? Not everyone knows what plus 800 or minus 250 means, you know, all these odds or different types of, you know, parlays, round robins, teasers, all these kind of concepts. And I think that's kind of where 
the sports engagement scene is kind of headed now, right? Once sports betting was legalized, all the offshore books, all the kind of sports bettors just created the platforms that they were used to using, right? Just very old school, basically putting your corner bookie into your pocket. But now we're finally seeing a wave of the kind of the second generation of sports betting, I want to call it, which is companies that are now trying to find ways to kind of reinvent the sports betting format to not just make it your corner bookie in your pocket, but you know, whether it's a stock market format, whether it's like better the Joey Levy and uh, Jake Paul company, which is really trying to make micro betting, you know, not just betting on the game, but what's the next pitch can be strike ball or, you know, hit or foul ball, that kind of stuff. These kind of instant reaction kind of really fast, really simple bets that make every moment of a game bettable, engageable, and kind of monetizable for both players, leagues, and users themselves. Yeah. So we enter this period, and you know, this is like during COVID, I suppose, Web3, right? The word's being used quite a bit. It's being talked about on podcasts, Discord groups like Twitter. It's just taken off, right? Yep. And the economy's going. It's like, we no one knows what's happening with the economy. Yep. So Web3 is like the number one topic that people are talking about. People don't understand it. What is Web3? Then they do understand it. It's, it's all over. And then things start happening. Bitcoin loses value. Ethereum loses value. People are confused. Then it's like, now we're going bigger into the economy. Like what's happening at a macro level? And AI makes a jump, right? So we have AI out there. Mm-hmm. So Web3 kind of takes a back seat. Well, now the banks, you know, SVB Bank, right? All these things are happening. Yep. It's like, what's the hot thing of the moment? And I don't think like Web3 ever was going away. It was almost like maybe too many people were talking about it. It was like, everyone's going to win. And it's, I'm going to stop what I'm doing right now. I'm going to just go all in with Web3. And, and you know, I don't know if like, people were right in 2000 and they hit the lottery or hit the lottery they thought on paper and then they lost it all. But yeah. Web3 is like this confusing thing. Like you heard what I just said there. Like, where do you think Mm -hmm. we are in this Web3 world right now? Yeah, I mean, in a large way, I think you're totally right that COVID almost put a too much of a spotlight on Web3 that it created a lot of incentive for people who had never talked about it, mentioned it, or built in it to come to the system and just kind of see what they could do. And in 2020, and especially 2021, you saw such an influx of people just building, starting companies, and just trying to make everything kind of on the blockchain, right? It didn't matter what the use case was. It was, if this exists in Web 2, there must be a Web 3 version of it that's better. And I think that that is where kind of a lot of people have gone wrong in the last couple of years here. And it's something that we really thought hard about having been involved in Web 3 as co-founders since 2016, 2017, right? We had seen various waves of hype come up, then you know, recede, come up, then recede. And what we really wanted to make sure was that when we were building a product, that there was an actual use case behind Web3. And I think what you're seeing right now, you know, with the collapse of Terra Luna last year and then FTX and now even the crypto banking system in flux right now is that there's really kind of a retreat to quality and a paring down of honestly a lot of companies and founders that didn't have an actual use case and were just kind of riding the wave of hype trying to cash in on a quick buck here as the audience was, you know, hotter than it's ever been kind of before. From my perspective, though, there's only been a couple use cases for the kind of Web3 ecosystem so far that have proven any sort of kind of product market fit. And those are traditionally, you know, decentralized finance, the idea that you don't have a centralized party controlling your capital, you don't have them doing shady stuff in the background, right? You don't have them loaning out your funds secretly, which is, you know, been an issue with centralized crypto exchanges, actually. And then on top of that, what you saw is there's a growth of kind of gaming and collectibles in crypto as well. And I don't want to talk about the entire NFT ecosystems because that's, you know, right. we probably talk <laughs> about that for, you know, hours in itself. I was actually a very early user of something like NBA Top Shot, for example, right? Mm-hmm. I was a beta user, knew about CryptoKitties actually like way back in the day from Dapper before they um, started all this NFT stuff. 
But what has really stuck around for me is I was investing or like, you know, basically gambling on sports NFTs kind of across the ecosystem, just because I thought this is kind of fun. Let's see what kind of is going on here. I'm very into sports collectibles. You know, I mean, you obviously see the jerseys and stuff kind of in my background here. But what I found now is, you know, Top Shot is honestly struggling, right? The kind of collectible wave of NFTs as a pure collectible has kind of struggled. But companies like So Rare that have made a fantasy game out of their NFTs are maintaining volume, maintaining usership. And it found kind of a real momentum here where it's a cool idea to have fantasy games where there's limited numbers of each player, right? There's scarcity of the players. If I want to get an Mbappe card, I should have to pay more for that if I want to win my league rather than paying for, you know, I don't know, some random MLS player who no one knows about. And so what I really feel like we're going through right now in the world of Web3 is a paring down of not just trying it everywhere, which I do think is a good, right? People need to be experimenting to, with use cases to find where it can really fit. But the use cases where it's been most kind of useful and sustainable in terms of usage and builders kind of maintaining those areas are decentralized finance and oftentimes gaming and often sports-related gaming in particular right now. And so for us, that just made it very clear that for us, sports betting is kind of in the middle of gaming and finance in a lot of ways. One of the original theses we had around Frontrunner was that we were noticing a, a general convergence overall in both Web 2 and Web 3 of gaming and finance. And what I mean by that is apps like Robinhood, Public, Weeble have really gamified and kind of, you know, made accessible retail trading or gambling on the stock market for the first time, which has made traditional investing feel more like gambling than ever before. On the other side, as more analytical minds and quantitative minds and even institutional trading firms get into sports betting, it feels more and more like a traditional financial market. So there's kind of funny situation where what used to be very separate classes of gambling products and gaming products and financial products look more and more similar than they ever have before. And again, I mentioned my little brother and I'm giving him a lot of shout outs here, so I hope he appreciates it. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was kind of the first one who in middle school, he was Ubering to and from school. And my parents were like, where are you getting the money to do this? And he had made like ten or $15,000 trading digital items on Steam, you know, like the digital games platform. Yes. And even gaming on that side has created like all these kind of virtual economies that have become a combination of gambling and finance within the gaming ecosystem. And so what we were really trying to do here, and especially where I think Web3 is really excelling right now, is hitting that intersection of gaming, gambling, and finance, and giving people the ability to kind of take control of their finances, their opinions, their knowledge, to get value out of it in ways they've never been able to previously. So that's where I kind of think the Web3 world is right now. And obviously, it's still developing. There's still use cases out there. But for now, those are the areas where I really feel like Web3 is excelling and doing, you know, things that Web2 isn't necessarily already good at. Yeah, that's awesome story about your brother too. Like, and the whole idea there is, and you mentioned the word market, like you need a market. Like if I have something that I want to sell, I need a buyer on the other end. If I own yep. Apple stock and no one wants to buy my Apple stock, well, then I can't sell my Apple stock. You know, Apple stock gets in trouble and next thing you know, I'm out. So that becomes a concern with, I think, a lot of these startups, let's say, that it takes two to tango, right? Yep. So let's get into a little bit of on front runner. If I'm holding a position, and you can explain this as well, I've heard it, I've heard you explain it, but I think a good foundation would help. Yep. If I have a position, I think even in your demo, you talk about the Phillies. If I have a position in the Philadelphia Phillies and I want to sell it, I need a buyer on the other end that was willing to buy that position. And I'll throw in this variable, the variable of the complications in Web3 of getting started, of having your MetaMask yeah. wallet, right? I've gone through that process. I've done these things, but I also understand you say these things out loud to other people and they're like, it's just right over their head. And well, you can learn about it. Absolutely. And I'm sure you would say this too. And I think I've heard you say this before, like 
yeah, there's a learning process, but there's so many people working on this right now that it will not be this complicated forever. Like to open up your laptop and sign in and you're on the internet, like that wasn't easy some years ago, right? That was a complicated process to get up and started and dial in and how do you do it? And you're trying to help someone else do it and it's a pain in the butt. Yep. So I think it'll get easier, but today it isn't easy. And so that, I guess, might limit the market of who would be on the other side of buying what I'm trying to sell and vice versa of, is there something I can buy out there? So speak on those topics because I think all of those are, are very important. I'm sure to front runner and probably what you think about every day. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that is a topic that we've been had kind of at the top of our minds since we started the company, you know, working on full time two years ago. We've been involved in Web3 for long enough that, you know, for example, I was a big Augur fan when it first came out. For those who don't know, Augur was probably the first kind of major decentralized prediction market that existed in the Ethereum ecosystem that launched in 2015, 2016, kind of back in the day. They were really awesome. But what we noticed was that too many startups in the Web3 space were splitting focus between protocol and product. And what I mean by that is that especially early Web3 companies were really focused on having the game theory, perfect blockchain, token, incentive structure, you know, voting, governance, all of that. But what they forgot about is that the product that that backend is supporting has to be usable and fun and accessible, right? Augur theoretically was perfectly designed to be a decentralized prediction market. But when it came to actually using it, it was a real pain. I had to go find the rep tokens on some exchange somewhere. Then I had to put it into my MetaMask. Then I had to plug in my MetaMask to the account. And then even then, the interface was so kind of honestly like archaic feeling that it was hard for me to realize what can I bet on? What's the value of my bets? And when am I going to get paid out for kind of anything on this side? So the kind of stance that we've taken, and I think more and more companies are taking, is that let's let another kind of group take care of the base protocol layer, the infrastructure layer, and let's really focus on the user experience. And what we are already finding, what we've really built our product to be, is our product as it stands today on testnet Users can come in without a wallet and we'll actually generate one for them, right? At the moment in which they do it. You don't need to know what MetaMask is. You don't need to even need to know. The funniest way I can describe it is that we're trying to make our Web3 product feel like it's Web2. If a new user comes to our mobile app today, they don't need to know what Web3 is or crypto or know anything about crypto. They can come in, we'll generate the wallet for them. Again, we don't have the keys. It's still all totally under their control. We'll airdrop them some, you know, free to play kind of capital and they can just start trading right away. It's as if they just logged into kind of like a, free version of FanDuel or DraftKings and can start betting right away. And when it comes to when we launch on mainnet, it'll be the same thing, but we'll also have a fiat on-ramp right when you onboard. So that if you don't already have your own crypto, if you're really a new user, you can just basically plug in a credit card or a debit card and fund your account just like you would on FanDuel or DraftKings. And I think that's where Web3 really has to move if it ever wants to have any hope of mass adoption outside of just the crypto maxis, the, you know, the DGENs that are already kind of there. You have to make it easy because... Who on earth is going to like go from FanDuel to a Web3 betting product if they have to jump through an extra six or seven hoops to get there where they don't understand kind of what's going on? You have to make it feel familiar to give yourself a chance to, you know, get that mass adoption. And that's really what we're focused on here. So in terms of making it easy for, you know, someone else, like if I'm betting on the Phillies and I want someone to take the other side, I have to make it easy for that other person who's like, oh no, screw you. The Phillies are definitely going to lose this game. We have to give them the easiest way possible to get from I think you're wrong to betting on the other side if we want to convert them. Like what's the timeline? And maybe you could speak to front runner or and maybe it's like a prediction that you would have and we can make bets on this. But like, <laughs> when does that happen? When does mass adoption become a thing? Maybe it's not mass adoption, but when do we get close? Like what's your aim or what are you thinking on that? 
Yeah. So, for example, I think that Dapper, even better than So Rare, did a good job of setting up kind of their ecosystem to be easy for mass adoption. Top Shot was kind of the first example of random people that I had never thought would get into Web3 diving into it in earnest, being so excited. And they said it because it was so easy. It didn't feel like a Web3 product. It was really just, you know, you have your Dapper wallet, you fund it with your credit card, and you can start buying these NFTs and start trading them naturally very quickly. I think as more companies kind of embrace this, and especially as more companies embrace not launching tokens right away as well, you know, that complicates kind of the entire ecosystem, mass adoption becomes more and more possible soon. So if I had to make a prediction, you know, maybe in the next like two to three years, we're going to see more and more, at least on the sports side, more and more kind of general adoption. The reason for this in particular, you know, we have some stats on this, is that in America, for example, about 30% of the population is generally familiar with blockchain or owns cryptocurrency of some kind at this point. You know, it's a relatively low number still at this point. If you look at sports fans, though, it's about 50% of sports fans are aware or own cryptocurrency already. If you look at sports bettors, it's about 70%. If you look at esports fans and esports bettors, mm-hmm. it's over 75%. So there's already pockets of these communities that are becoming very much exposed and aware of it. And, you know, it's really obvious why, because, you know, When Crypto.com bought the rights to the Staples Center for like $700 million, I mean, that's a big splashy move. I mean, Miami renamed their, like, the Heat had their stadium renamed by FTX and stuff, obviously RIP that. But (laughs) there's just so much kind of intersection there. And what you're finding, though, is that there is kind of a similar profile to a sports fan or a sports better to a crypto kind of, you know, maxi. It's kind of that combination of risk tolerance, ownership, and that desire to kind of, you know, put your money where your mouth is kind of, that really kind of has that overlap. And so I really do believe that, you know, DeFi is always going to have its use cases for institutions, for kind of people that always want to get in the trading world. But sports and esports really seem like the first avenue where Web3 can really make a huge kind of inroad just naturally based on where the world is already and kind of where the world is going in terms of where things are. Sports bettors are already mad that they get limited on their bets or banned from platforms for winning too much money. People know the phrase, the house always wins. And it's ridiculous that this is kind of an accepted practice in sports betting when, I guess, in the financial world, People are kind of aware that, you know, the house always wins. It's kind of where the Wall Street bets movement kind of came out of. And people are upset about it. People want to do things to fight against it. And I think as more and more people learn about sports betting and use apps like Robinhood, they're going to realize like, wait a minute, I can't sell my sports bet to someone else in the middle here, right? Like you're offering odds that are better than what I have right now. Why can't I sell to someone else who's betting at this price anyway? There's more and more of a natural desire to want more freedom in your betting positions. And Web3 is kind of the perfect avenue to express and allow people to do exactly that. Yeah, no, man, that's well said. I've always thought like when you talk about NFTs, for example, and we're not going to go down that path, but when people think of it and you call it the word NFT, it's almost like if you're buying a ticket to a game and it becomes with these extra benefits that you get, if it was, that's just how you did it then like, it's like showing up to the game with your phone and they scan your ticket. Like you don't have a ticket anymore. Your phone is your ticket. So like at the beginning, it was like, what do you mean? I just show up with my phone and they, I get in. That was confusing to people. To where like, when it just becomes the thing that you do, then it's normal, right? Yep. And that's what you do. And that takes a little bit of time as opposed to like, well, you got to go buy an NFT and you got to do all these things. You're like, wait, what? I don't want to do that. So I'm going to go do it the other way that I'm used to doing it. That's more comfortable for me. Yeah, man. Like it's a wild space that we're in right now. So when I think of front runner and we are talking about having two sides to the bet, right? Is there a market? Is there an open market available to me to make those deals? I see the Lakers jerseys back there. If I want to bet the Lakers and like, I want to find someone who's on the other side and they're playing the Mavericks, am I going to find someone right now? Or is that going to be complicated? Are we too early in the game for you to say, no, I don't know if you'll find someone on the other side of that. 
or no, no, it's pretty good chance. Like with what we have, we have a market for you in front runner. Yep. So currently what we have is we are recovering March Madness at the NBA, the NFL, Premier League, and we have F1 as well. So kind of a variety of sports around the table. But in terms of the individual markets, in the early days, as we're getting off the ground here, you know, the front runner kind of team or company is oftentimes the one taking the other side here. You can think of it as us being kind of market makers for our own kind of sports betting markets, just to make sure that we have basic liquidity available for early users to make sure that, you know, they're getting the full experience and are able to kind of trade in and out of positions, not only before a game, but also during a game live. And honestly, for us, it's easier to be market makers in a lot of ways in sports betting than it is in traditional financial markets because sports betting odds are available. They're pretty good at this point. And, you know, there are companies that do a really good job having lines available, not only before games, but during games as well. So at the worst, we can provide kind of sports book style odds that you can trade in and out of on our platform. But as we build more users, as we build more kind of external partners as well, we expect that that liquidity will naturally increase and that we will be able to kind of take our thumb off the scale, so to speak, and be truly a neutral exchange and allow our users to participate. The other side that we also think is really exciting, though, that Web3 has really offered is the idea that users can contribute capital to a pool where they can essentially serve as the house for the first time, right? Maybe I'm not a sports better that has a direct opinion, but I just want to be the one collecting a couple percentage basis points, percentage points on the spread of a given Lakers market, right? I can basically contribute capital to a, you can think of it as a market making fund that is basically putting in orders at sports book odds prices to allow the users that contribute capital to that to basically just collect the fees and kind of the spread on that. And so that's also the kind of freedom that we give to increase liquidity and bootstrap liquidity. There's so many users out there that have heard the house always wins. Wouldn't it be great to be able to contribute capital and invest essentially to be the house and get kind of profits from that like I would be if I was running a sportsbook myself? So those are some of the exciting ways that we're hoping to kind of build our initial liquidity along with some external partners. Our biggest investor in our last round, Susquehanna International Group, they're a major international trading firm, but they're also famous for having, you know, being one of the first institutional trading firms to have a sports betting operation. You know, they have a team of 20 plus analysts dedicated specifically to sports betting modeling, which they send over to their Irish operation, which basically places all their bets around sports books as a separate kind of investment class from their normal kind of trading activities. And the reason they invested in us is that they get limited in all the sports books. They have issues getting money into kind of the system here. They're hoping in the medium to long term that they can use an exchange like ours to be a full platform for them to do full-scale institutional-style trading yeah. in sports-related markets. Man, yeah, that's it right there. Like, There's so much that you're given to the investors and to the individuals like myself to participate in as opposed to like, why do I have to do it just the way that it's always been done? Like, That's the frustration I think so many people have. Like, I'm going to lose. Like, If you bet long enough, you're going to end up losing. Like, It's just the way it goes. And there's other ways to participate in this. And yeah, man, like, I think that's fascinating that like, and I was going to ask you about the investors and I was also going to ask you about like, so if you are, are making the market, like I can see where there could be a spread where you all can win and you make some money, right? That's important in order for the business to succeed. Obviously you can have investors or you can actually generate revenue. How do you generate revenue? Because you talked a little bit before, like if I bet on Sportsbook, then they're going to take a cut, right? Yep. They get their big, right? But how are you all generating revenue with front runner? Is it, yeah, you, you can just answer that. Yeah. So when we kind of go to mainnet and turn on kind of the real money switch, the default plan was to have a small transaction fee on every transaction. So we don't care if users win or lose. What we care is that they're buying and selling kind of shares of their various bets. And at a 1% or below fee, it is going to be much more equitable than a traditional sports book, which is in the range of 5 to 20% spreads on every bet that you can possibly make. But actually, more recently, we've been kind of considering 
is it possible for us to turn off fees entirely and monetize through other ways, right? Could we potentially offer something like a subscription service for, you know, yeah. a Robinhood Gold type model, right? Where our users get access to more data, access to kind of more in-depth insights in their bets to monetize separately because at its core, what we're trying to do here is democratize sports betting as much as possible, giving users the ultimate ability to succeed and fail based on their knowledge and skill. And not just because we're nickel and diming you at every corner with fees, with withdrawal fees, with deposit fees, kind of things all around the table. Could we be ad supported? Are you willing to watch a 20 second ad rather than losing, you know, a 20% big on your bet rather than that? So we're actually going to be exploring a lot of other angles. And in my dream of dreams, we would be truly the first no fee sports betting exchange possible if we can find other ways that we could maybe provide value, whether it's through affiliate deals, whether it's through partnerships. You know, there's a lot of areas we're exploring because I think just for too long, the assumption is that you could only make money off sports betting off of screwing people on the odds or screwing people with fees. But more and more accurately, you know, people thought that about the stock market as well before Robinhood existed, right? There's just so many other ways to explore, which we feel that the incumbent players just aren't right now, right? They're just very sad in their ways, very comfortable just, you know, collecting their checks once a month from users kind of getting their fees taken out of their bets. But we really believe there's a lot of area to explore and someone's going to figure out other ways to monetize that are much more fair to the user and can give people a much longer kind of shelf life to reduce churn of users as well, right? One of the issues that sportsbooks have is that if your expected value of every bet is like 45%, users are going to run out of money. You always need a new set of users to kind of come in here. If we reduce those fees, we hope we can keep people engaged for longer and keep them, you know, on our platform. You know, that level of engagement, we think, will be higher if it's more fair and giving them more opportunities to place bets. Yeah, that is something you'd have to pay attention to, right? Like, there's no cost to using this, like, on a transaction base. Like you said, maybe there's a VIP experience and a subscription and I pay X amount of money per month or what mm-hmm. have you. But that is something that I think the average person would say, I want to see what that is. Like, and at the end of the day, that's probably all you're looking for. Like, just give us a chance, take a look at it, see what it looks like, watch the demo, place a couple bets, and then all of a sudden they're into it. But does it as a founder, right? And as you're growing something, there's a lot of like, you know the direction and you have this vision and you're like, in your dream of dreams, you've said that numerous times, like you have this vision that you're going out for. But at the same time, like, there's no set answer, right? It's difficult for to run a business to say, here's exactly how we're going to make money. Here's exactly how this thing's going to play out. How do you deal with that stress of saying, we can monetize this way, this way, or I don't even know the other ways that might present themselves. Like you're in the front runner hat right now. Like at the end of the day, you might just be selling swag. I mean, I don't know, but like, how do you handle that stress? And also you have people that rely on you. And then you have investors that are probably asking a lot of questions. Like, how do you handle all of that coming at you, knowing that maybe all the decisions haven't been made and probably knowing that like, there's always new decisions to make and there's always new ventures that you're going out on. But like, personally, how do you take all of that in? Yeah, I mean, it's really relevant right now, especially kind of with the startup economy where it is right now with the banking situation and everything. And I guess the flat answer is, is that there's good times and there's bad times. And the times that are tough make the times that are good even better. And with that kind of idea, I mean, the best thing I can say is that, you know, I'm really lucky to have a co-founding team and a team that is supportive and really aligned in terms of the vision. And so even when times are tough or there's a high pressure environment or we have to make tough decisions, having the support of the team and the co-founders, I mean, it alleviates a lot of kind of the base stress, right? At some point, like, you know, sure, there's all this external pressure, there's all this kind of external visibility, but we're the group that's here together. We're here to support each other. And with that, there's no one else I'd want to go into battle with. And more than anything else, I think as a founder, what you're really trying to do is minimize regret 
in a lot of ways, right? If what we were doing had an obvious outcome or an obvious path, someone else would have already did it, right? That, that's just kind of the fact of the matter, right? No one has yet built a truly successful decentralized sports prediction market. And so going into this, we did not expect like, hey, let's just get on the rails. Let's just go down the conveyor belt and get down to, you know, our billion dollar unicorn valuation. That was never the assumption here. But because we're working on something that is, I mean, to us, just it's honestly so much fun and something that in my heart of hearts, I really believe is something that I would love to use, right? I am the user that would love to have this. It makes every day a little bit easier that way. And it makes it easier to communicate with investors, with partners, with people, because we're speaking from a vision of honesty and kind of like what we really believe in. And with that, you know, we're transparent. There's not, there's no reason to kind of mislead anyone. And, and we don't need to kind of even lie to ourselves in that way. It becomes a lot easier to kind of stomach, you know, we're at a fork in the road here. We have to make a decision. Let's just make sure that we covered as many angles as possible. We're not going to ever have a decision point, which is like 100% guaranteed to end up. But as long as we're comfortable with our kind of process and have thought about things the right way, which we really believe we're doing, then yeah, let's send it, right? Like even if things go wrong, as long as the process of getting there was right, we're okay with the result here and we'll keep iterating. We'll keep figuring things out. It's not just a one and done situation here. We're going to be constantly fighting to out of our spot here. What we tell our team all the time is we need to have the underdog mentality. I mean, we're going up against, honestly, an industry that is a multi-billion dollar industry that's spending billions of dollars on just marketing themselves. How are we going to get ourselves out there? We have to have that kind of scrappy underdog mentality. And I think we really do have that. It makes it easier day to day to kind of make these decisions that way. Yeah. Well, just even having this conversation, I think, is a lot of that. Like one, it's content. One, people come across it. One, you get to share your thoughts, answer questions like that. That kind of gets into the psyche, the mental health of a founder and what they're going through. And like you said, the ups and downs. There's a lot, even in the space that you're in, in sports betting. Like there's a ton. Yep. And we talked about this a little bit before, whether there's a sports psychology of rooting for a team. I mean, it's a zero sum game in many ways in sports, right? Like your yeah. team's going to lose. Like there's 32 NFL teams and chances are your team will not win the Super Bowl. I can promise you that being a Bills fan, right? It just doesn't happen, <laughs> right? But yeah. how do people handle that thing? And then you get into fantasy sports, right? And fantasy sports is chances are your team's not going to win. And how do people handle that? And then there's money at stake in fantasy sports most of the time. And then there's the sports gambling side of it, which also gets into the money thing. So it's like in all of it, there's a lot in this, the conversations coming up a lot as it relates to mental health. And so on that, just what I've said and what you've talked about, there's so many points that we could touch on as it relates to that mental health side of things and kind of going back to what you were talking about. I mean, it seems like very level-headed, very grounded, very like enjoying the moment, but also understanding like every decision I make is not going to be right. And that doesn't mean the decision was wrong. And that just means like, mm -hmm. hey, we're going to iterate. And I think that's a fabulous word. It's a word I use often as well. And it's important to allow yourself to make those mistakes. And I would imagine that you're taking a lot of time on your own reflection and reading and thinking and going on walks or working out or watching the game and, and like having no stakes even on that game or whatever you might do. Like, and then we'll get into the mental health side of it with gambling in a second. But like when I say those things, like how are you taking care of like your own sanity as it relates to this? Because you could have the best team, you have the best partners. And we've seen it though. Like we've seen athletes and Hollywood stars like just opt out and just say, I can't take it anymore. Yeah. I have to leave. We've seen kids. We The opt-out rate for youth sports right now is at an all-time high because the pressure to win and the pressure to go and play collegiate to go pro is like, it's just insane. And it's like, sometimes it's just all too much. And they're like, I'm done. I'm out. Yeah. Like, how are you taking all of this as it relates to someone who's in a position that you're in? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And so I don't want to compare myself to obviously like, you know, top athletes and stuff. But sure. to be honest, you know, 
I've had a lot of pressure on me since, you know, a very young age with kind of my parents' expectations for me, you know, coming from China to, you know, start a better life here, having much better opportunity to go out there. So there's always been that element. But I think what's really helped me on top of that is being a avid sports better myself and someone who's, you know, participating in the stock market and things like that. I really have been able to separate results from process, I think, pretty well, right? There's so many bets that I've made in my life where, you know, the model was saying a certain thing and, you know, the process was as right as it can be. But, you know, things don't always work out in the real world just because, you know, the numbers say things should be one way or another. I think just with that, it's gotten, because I've been doing it for, you know, about a decade now, even not even including like fantasy and poker stuff like before that, when I was probably a little bit more hot-headed, like when I, in my like uh, high school and college days, it really did just become a aspect of self-confidence as well in terms of knowing myself well enough to know when I'm actually confident in decision or when I need to have something, you know, back me up or some more information to be comfortable with something. At some level, I think as a founder, as a better, as someone in life, you know, I actually think that, I mean, a little bit aside here, I think FanDuel does a great job with a new campaign, which is you make bets all the time in real life. And I really believe in that. When I was deciding between sticking at my nine to five job or leaving to start my own company, it was a bet on myself, right? It was a bet on me, my co-founders. And that kind of self-confidence and that ability to separate, you know, the results of this company were aiming for the stars. But regardless, everything we've learned along the way here, all the processes we've done, even the mistakes we've made, are things to learn from and iterate on. I mean, and the funniest thing to say, and this is like not to at all talk about, you know, the outcome of Frontrunner, but regardless of what happens with Frontrunner, I'm already thinking a little bit about like, oh my God, like for the next company, I'm going to do this better, right? Like mm. everything is an iteration. And even if things are going badly now in the moment of Frontrunner, we're going to have another moment to fix it, correct and course correct. And heaven forbid, you know, Frontrunner doesn't work out or Web3 ends up being a total flop long-term. It's all a learning experience and it's building towards something else that hopefully will be bigger, better. And, you know, I'll be stronger, hopefully on the other side of it. And I think as long as you think about this as life as almost like an iterable process, I think that it becomes a lot easier to stomach the moment-to-moment turbulence or churn. But again, I'm in a very lucky position that I could also afford that. So, I mean, everyone had kind of comes from a different perspective on that side as well. So not sure if that's helpful or makes any sense, but that's kind of how I think about, at least myself personally. It's very helpful. That's why I love these conversations to really get down to like the core of like what makes someone think through these things and how are they going to go about it? And and how can someone else listen in that? They can have a business that has nothing to do with what you're doing, right? But they can still mm-hmm. take application from it. And if nothing else, I know I can, right? <laughs> and that matters. And I have three kids and I know they can at some point in their own time, they can come across this conversation and and think about how that applies to them or, you know, they just made a mistake, right? And, and so what do you do with that? And yep. you had said like, you're in a lucky position. And what happens a lot of times is people get into these, these fun activities that have stakes. And we've talked about a lot, fantasy sports, sports gambling. They don't have, and it's not a judgment on someone else. They just haven't thought through things the way you've thought through them, perhaps. And they haven't had this conversation. And so they get into sports gambling and they get into more sports gambling. And then they're kind of knee-deep in it and they're getting into trouble. So there's an addiction thing going on here. So it's great because... I don't know. You could go to Vegas and you could bet on anything. There's sports books. People can bet. They can bet from their couch in Virginia or Washington. It didn't matter. Before it was legalized, they were still doing it. And they were doing it with bookies over the phone or via text message. Now it's legalized because the government's got to get involved with it. And so it's probably a better thing because it's going to be out there regardless. So let's get some government maybe controls on it. And let's like educate people on it. Like that's like what you're doing. This conversation is education, whether it's for us and, and the people that are listening to it. But at the same time, 
we've talked a lot about mental health and there's an addiction component that does exist in sports gambling. It's for the addicts can be in fantasy sports, right? Like it's maybe not even the money, it's the time, the hours that are spent. Like we see the lost opportunity, the lost efficiency that exists at companies during March Madness or during fantasy sports. Like these are real things, real issues that are impacting people when they go home with their families and they're not spending time because they're just focused on that thing. That's a problem. Like, I'm sure you've thought about it and thought through it. And maybe that's where your education is. Like when I say all that, like what comes to mind for you? Yeah. I mean, you're seeing it worldwide that there's more and more of a focus on responsible gaming. And I think where really there is a much larger inroad starting to happen is on marketing regulations of gambling products. Actually, you saw, I think it was announced two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago. I forget exactly what it was, but Belgium as a country just outlawed gambling marketing across the board, like fully starting this summer. And you're actually seeing, you know, countries like Australia that have been kind of, you know, without any kind of regulations, ravaged by gambling addiction kind of across the board here. And so this is going to be like probably the most controversial thing to the Web3 community that follows me is that I do think there has to be some amount of regulation around what is allowed to happen in gambling. There has to be the ability for users to set their own limits, to self-exclude themselves from the platform. And these are all things that we've kind of been very aware of from day one. At this stage, sports betting and gambling has to still be primarily as a product that's meant for fun. When you get to the level of people ruining their lives, you know, taking second mortgages on their houses to make a bet on a team, right? That's where things are very obviously not within the boundaries of what sports betting should be used for at this stage of kind of, you know, time. And part of it is from the sports companies, the sports betting companies themselves to include features to allow people to control themselves, to self-exclude or, you know, not put themselves in a situation where they can get to a level of addiction where it is traumatic and a negative externality to society in general. But combined with the fact that, you know, state regulators, federal regulators, and national regulators from other countries need to have a better eye on how this is being marketed, right? A lot of these, the latest stats are things that, you know, problem gamblers are highly susceptible to free bet promotions that are currently really prevalent in the U.S. right now. And it makes it really difficult for an addict to control themselves when you're being shown, like, up to $5,000 free bet if you come here, or, like, you know, get $1,000 free for coming to the platform, when you're giving all these kind of incentives, it's just so natural for the exact kind of addictive personalities to get in there with it. So I would be very shocked if a year or two years from now, you're tuning into a sports game and 95% of the ads are still sports betting, to be totally honest here. I think that's probably the kind of initial start here where we can start helping out society, right? We just don't want to end up in a society full of addicts in this kind of realm, which is meant for fun and engagement but has now led to kind of a darker side that's starting to become more and more prevalent and more paid attention to as time goes on. Yeah, and I think that's where it's important to come across a conversation like this or the many conversations that you've had to learn about you, Neil, to learn about FrontRunner, to say, that's a company I can get behind. Like, even if I lose, I feel like I'm supporting a company that's doing it the right way. I truly believe in it because a lot of times, I trust you, Neil, right? Like, I've had a conversation, I've looked into this, I've heard you in other conversations, like, no, no, I can trust Neil, I can trust FrontRunner. I can't trust other companies. Like, why would I? I can't trust politicians. How could I? Like, they've given us nothing to really like say. And they're saying that generally speaking, obviously, but like, what have they proven that they're they have our best interests? They don't. There's just mm-hmm. no way. So even if they do remove the advertisements, it's a good step in the right direction. I think we have to do those things, but like, I don't know how do we trust it. So it's like finding the right companies that exist out there 
that we can get behind and that we can support, if that makes sense. Yep. And so I appreciate you, you know, kind of taking that time. And I think that's probably a big reason why you're out here having these types of conversations on podcasts and creating content, having Discord groups and getting in comments is to allow that type of conversation. It just takes time. It takes time for the consumer out there to listen to it. And we're winding down here now. And I want to bring up this last question because it's top of mind. I got three kids. You know, kids go to college. It's a big conversation. You went to two prestigious schools at Pennsylvania, UPenn, and Wharton, I believe, is where you got your MBA. And there's big brands. You're now a founder of a business. I'm just curious as to like, there's a lot of conversation around college and your mm-hmm. take on college coming from like your background. And you'd mentioned it like in your family and what the expectation were, and you've had a lot on you. Like, as you look back on your college experience and think about like if you're advising kids in, in different scenarios, like whether they have the academic wherewithal to want to succeed and go to that type of school, like where do you see things right now from college? And then you also see the price of college and like what the commitment level is and whether it's for the kid or the family and student loan debt and all of that. Again, I'm just, I'm speaking and I'm gonna let you take that from here as we finish this off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so... To give you some context, my father is a professor, a college professor. And so academics for us from day one have always been really an emphasis. In fact, my dad used to always say, like, you have to listen to me. I've got a PhD. Like, (laughs) I know better, like that that kind of stuff. So it's always been kind of an emphasis on my side. College for me, and Penn will back this up, I was not a perfect student necessarily in terms of like my grades, my performance. But for me, college was a time to really explore my interests and find myself. And beyond that, find out the types of people that really I enjoy being with and I want to be with for, you know, a long term. My co-founders, we all met in college, right? We've been friends for over 10 years now. and It's been amazing that we've had the opportunity to have this journey. The rising costs of college are, I mean, having just paid, taken out some loans for my MBA and things like that. I mean, I'm very aware of kind of the costs here. And it's a really unfortunate situation that costs for college continue to rise and the need for a college degree for even baseline jobs continues to rise more and more. It's just such a difficult situation. Again, we were very lucky to come from a family that was very academically oriented and had support from the academic community because my dad was a professor to allow us to kind of get to the right places. But there needs to be kind of more attention paid to you know making it more accessible, right? I mean, Frontrunner is all about democratizing sports betting in such a real way. Someone needs to figure out a much better way to democratize colleges. And there's even unfortunate things like you know these for-profit online institutions that are kind of almost predators to people that think that they need college degrees from them that but end up with a degree that's worth very little kind of on the other side here. And so, I mean, I'm not at all qualified to speak about how to solve this. Right. I'll leave that to the people that are kind of more directly involved in the education system, the kind of government financial system. But it is becoming more and more clear that the Web3 movement at its core, I think, is a lot about democratizing finances, democratizing access, democratizing knowledge transfer, democratizing information. And it seems only natural at some point within the next you know, five to 10 years that there's a much kind of brighter spotlight shined on the educational system of the US and maybe a similar movement will follow and hopefully along with that movement, actual change in kind of the setup and how prices, costs, and students are kind of placed around the ecosystem. Yeah, there's definitely needs to be some disruption. You see a lot of things like at Arizona State, there are these online programs to where they're trying to reach out and educate more people. 
right? Mm -hmm. and maybe not in their mainline university, but like online and there's no cost to it, right? Or if there is a cost, it's very minimal to even see if they want to go to college and if they yep. want to get started. So no doubt, I mean, there's a lot of thinking to do for a lot of different people. But Neil, this is amazing. I appreciate it. And we've talked for a while. I could go on for hours because this conversation <laughs> is fascinating to me. I know it is for you as well. But Front Runner, where do people learn about Front Runner? What do they learn about you? How could they continue to learn more? Yeah, for those who are interested, uh, you can check us out at getfrontrunner.com. We have our iOS app and Android apps that just launched about two weeks ago. So fresh, hot off the press, you can get access to those. If you're interested in kind of keeping up with us, please follow us on Twitter and Discord. Our Twitter is at FrontrunnerXYZ and our Discord can be found on our webpage, getfrontrunner.com. Yeah. That's awesome, Neil. Thank you so much. So much education, so much intel, so much insight, a lot of data. Like, man, we'll be paying attention to it, no doubt. And I appreciate like your time and your insights. Awesome. Thank you so much, Eric. It was a pleasure, yeah. In case you haven't noticed, we love podcasts. In fact, we love building podcasts, everything from development to production. Because of all that, we're building a one-of-a-kind podcast network. If you have a podcast or looking to launch a new podcast, then we should talk. You can message me on Twitter at Eric underscore Kaz or hit us up any way that works for you. Let's talk about your podcast joining this one-of-a-kind podcast network.